And kids, kindergarten through second grade, if you want to stand up and start making your way to your story time, I think you can see Miss Anna and Mr. Caleb there in the back. They'll uh, take you on out. And as they go out, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. And Frank, thank you for making the box. One thing Frank didn't mention on the what uh, woodworking was an escape from the stressful job. The stressful job was managing uh, payload deliveries to places like the International Space Station. And so I think about how stressful it is to get four kids out of the door in the morning where they all have their shoes on and their lunchbox. And uh, so I couldn't imagine the stress uh, delivering payloads to the International Space Station. So thank you, uh, thank you for that. And kids who are staying, one thing I want you to think about as we start the sermon, if, if you could meet anyone in the world, who would you meet? So if you could meet anybody, who would it be? So you write it down. And then you tell your teacher in your class later this afternoon, but who would you meet? And then what do you think is, would be required? Like, what would you need to be able to meet that person? So how could you meet them? And what we're looking at this morning is uh, one of the most famous stories in the Bible and one of the most famous stories in all of world literature and world history. It's, it's an encounter between Moses and the living God. And he meets God in such a way where his life is, is never the same. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to uh, look at this passage. And what we want to wrestle with is, is how can you have an encounter with the living God? How do you meet him? So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 and kind of set the stage what we, what we've, what we have here in Exodus uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3. I think one of the things Moses is giving us is he's giving us a, a select number of windows into uh, the most significant moments that either kind of made him or kind of revealed who he is. So you have these little snapshots of his life. You only get about uh, four or five little moments in his life for the first 80 years. And the, you know, the first moment is this uh, time where we called it the conspiracy of compassion, where you had these five different women who heroically challenged Pharaoh and the, the most powerful man in the world at the time. And they heroically stood up to him to undermine uh, his plot and planning. And Moses' life came into being under this remarkable uh, miracle, an act of heroic uh, resistance. And then you have these different snapshots, one snapshot of the first time he enters into public life and asserts himself and is going to kind of, in essence, try and uh, achieve his destiny, who he was made to be, the liberator, the prince of Egypt, and he fails colossally and then has to run and then you have this other moment where he, he also uh, asserts himself and acts, but it seems to be more successful. And he at least uh, wins a bride and a family and a job out of it. And then we come to this next, this next moment. And you know, if you think about it, every person in here, you probably have maybe four to seven just like moments in time that you often don't think about. They're not on the forefront of your mind, but they're, they're operating in the background, and they, they have this powerful effect on who you are and how you see the world. And if you pause and you just think about it, just certain moments that live in this technicolor clarity in your mind. And some of them could be the most ordinary moments where um, it, it's something that just kind of happened that you never forgot, 
You know, it could be that little league game, the championship game that you are so excited for and you remember coming up to the plate and looking in the stands and your dad's not there. And in that moment, you, you realize that people can't be trusted. They can't be counted on. Or there could be another moment that's crystallized in your mind where you're, you're mocked and maybe it's in, <clears throat> in sixth grade. A lot of these things seem to happen in sixth grade. Maybe a sixth grade gym class and you're hanging on the pull-up bar and you can't budge with all of your strength and you hear the chorus of laughters and you think, never again will I be made fun of like that. Or maybe there's another moment where something happened and shame came on you and you said, my children will never experience this. It can often happen in moments where we kind of make vows and often there are moments of, of difficulty where something has happened that's brought a sense of fear or guilt or shame and those live large in our minds, but not always. I think evolutionary psychologists would say that we've been uh, wired by evolution to be more attuned to threats and of course you think, well, Evolution is not a thing, so it, and we're not machines to be wired. It's not a person. Maybe a better explanation for why those live so large in our memory is because we've been designed by a creator, and this is the effects of, of sin in our life. So it's often difficult moments where we've been sinned against, but not always. Sometimes it's kind of glorious moments where maybe you hit the winning shot at the end of the game, and it crystallized in your mind that I, I'm a finisher, if when, when the pressure's the tightest and the lights are the brightest, I step up and I perform. But these, these moments. And we get one here with Moses because he has this encounter. And, you know, Moses could have just given us the facts. God called me to go and confront Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh that now I'm about to take all of his uh, free labor source. So God called me. But he, he gives us this story. And you kind of think, all right, well, why? So there's meaning embedded in the story. What's he trying to tell us? One of my professors kind of illustrated the difference between just the facts and the story this way. He said, uh, you know, this was, well, this was 20 years ago. And so the year before, he had walked with his father who had just uh, passed away from Alzheimer's. He said, all right, the, the facts is last year my dad died of Alzheimer's. So that's just the fact. But then part of the story is every night I went to the nursing home and every night I held him and made sure he drank his insure because I resolved you will not starve to death on my watch. So you see, one is just the facts. But the other one is a little snippet into the meaning, the story, who he is, what their relationship was like. And that's what Moses is giving us here. And the question is, like, how can you have a similar encounter and experience with the living God that will transform you so you'll never be the same? So let's dive into the text, and we're going to just compare. All right, you know, where was Moses? What did he experience? What did he do? Who did he meet? And then we'll kind of compare it. All right, how, how can we draw parallels? Well, you know, where are we? What, what do we need to do? What to, who do we meet? So now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why is the bush not burned? 
And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the, the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So how do you have this life-changing encounter with the living God? All right, the first thing, what do you need? What do you need? Let's just look. All right, where is Moses? So where is he? And notice in verse 1, in, in one sense, he is, he is off the grid. He is like, you kind of, you go to nowhere in the Middle East, and then you take a left, and then you keep going another few miles. He is off the grid. Moses is keeping flocks of his father Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock. Now, this is where, this, this is where the ESV translates it, the west side, to the west. It could be translated the far side. You could literally translate it the dark side. But maybe they know that might have connotations that they don't want, you know. Now to, it's it's he he went to it's the backside of the mountain, it's the dark side. It's as far away from where he started as he could possibly be. He's gone out on the backside, the dark side. He's literally in the middle of nowhere. And what's happened? There's two different kind of. You look at the story, and there's two different major detours that have to happen. There's first, where is Moses? He's out in the wilderness, and his, from one perspective, his whole life is on this gigantic 40-year macro detour. From his perspective, his whole life has been derailed. You know, he was raised to be an aristocrat in the palace. He was born to be the liberator and the deliverer, and now he's a fugitive on the run in the middle of nowhere. And I can't say that word nowhere without thinking about this. You know, certain lines and families just kind of take on a life of their own. And I'm the oldest of four, two boys, two girls. And when my, uh, <clears throat> the third sibling, one of my younger sisters, uh, was in high school, she, uh, one spring break, she desperately wanted to go to the beach, Panama City, with all of her friends. And my parents, being thoughtful, good parents, weren't going to allow her to go. And so, you know, as, as teenagers do, when they don't get the thing they want, the, they're, they're pay, the way they pay it back is they're going to make life miserable for everyone else in the house. And so the way her two older brothers handled this situation is we took incredible joy and delight in um, sort of looking for like amplifying, magnifying, poking uh, the fact that she was so frustrated and disappointed and like she would you know cry like I, I can't go to the beach like what am I supposed to do for spring break and my parents like well you can spend time with your brothers and she's like ah that's terrible and it's like my life is over now and I just wasn't really seeing the you know the depth of despair and the problem and so what we started doing is uh, we had this running joke where we just stop and look at each other and say hey Lauren 
where are you going for spring break? And then the other brother would chime in, destination, nowhere. And so we just started, it took this life a little, it took the, hey, where do you want to go today? Destination, nowhere. And so I can't say that word. Where's Moses? He is destination, nowhere. And he's probably not happy about it. I mean, he's out in the middle of nowhere. And now for him, this is not voluntary obscurity. Read this week, it was kind of funny about a lot of uh, kind of Hollywood stars who are moving off the grid. So, for example, if you love bluegrass music and you ever find yourself in Brevard, North Carolina, you might hear a, a bluegrass band playing and look up and Steve Martin might be there just plucking on the banjo because he's going to moved off the grid or Harrison Ford is ranch in Wyoming and Bruce Willis in Idaho and Robert Redford in Utah. They're going off, off the grid. This is not Moses. He, he's not there voluntarily. And so his whole life, from one perspective, he's like, how did I get here doing this? But then notice there's another thing that he has to do. There's a smaller detour. He's, he's tending the flock, and he sees this bush, and he doesn't understand. He's curious. He repeats in verse 3, I will turn aside to see this great sight and why this bush is not burned. And in verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside. So it wasn't enough he was out in the middle of nowhere. He had to pause in the middle of his normal routine of life to turn aside to see something. He's curious. Something has got his attention. And it's something that's like, wait, I see something that does exist, but this shouldn't exist. So how do I make sense of this? And the lessons for us, you know, those first two things, like where is he, what does he do? The lessons are, all right, well, where are you? You know, it's often... In the wilderness, that's often where people have the life-changing encounter with the living God. It's often when they feel like they've hit rock bottom or they've come and they're stuck in destination nowhere. And they're like, how, like, how did I get here? This, my life is a dead end. I mean, am I living in the wrong place or doing the wrong job or in the wrong body? How did I wind up here? And it's often there is where God will meet his people. So you might find yourself either in a certain ministry situation or maybe you're connected to the, I, I, like when I thought about and planned my life, I didn't imagine that I would be in Central Florida at this time in my life. I thought I would be here. You think your occupation, you think I, I shouldn't still be in this office, I should be higher up. Or maybe think about your family or relational dynamics. You think, all right, how did this relationship get here? Or maybe it's financial. How did we get here? And so God often meets us. We think, how did we get here? And so the first thing is, all right, where are we? But then notice, where are you? What do you need to do? It's not enough just to be in the wilderness. Even in the wilderness, you have to leave your normal routine and seek him, the ordinary business of life. Many people are brought near, but they still don't see you know, Tim Keller, when he was talking about this verse, had a funny thing. He said, most New Yorkers, even if they saw a burning bush, wouldn't stop. They just, they're just too busy. And he said, oh, there's a burning bush. Somebody please put that out. Or, you know, nobody's paying me to be the bush inspector. I got a job to do. I can't stop. And kind of humorously went through all the things that people, they're just too busy. We would not stop 
for the burning bush. Think about it. I mean, maybe would you stop if you saw the burning bush or just cry at night? Somebody do something about that. Or bush, what bush? I don't see anything. Or maybe you're just looking at a screen and don't see the bush at all. And when the, I was going to say sad, the humor, say funny is not the right word. When the sad, funny, humorous, I don't know what the right word, tragic is, you know, all the like memes and videos you can see now of people who are like staring at their screen and don't even realize there's like, you know, they nearly get hit by a car or there's like something on fire, literally like a house on fire behind them. I mean, would you even notice? <clears throat> you know, one of the hard things is there's so much that happens in life that we don't see and researchers have been doing different experiments because it is remarkable how much we can ignore. Now here's one study, I got a little video from one study. This is probably pretty famous so you've seen this before but it's on the, these researchers started doing these different tests to measure our um, selective attention. So Cody, pull up the first video. So here's a little pop quiz, let's see if you can get the right answer. Attention. Maybe not. All right, don't worry about it. Actually, I'll, I'll give away the punchline, but you might have seen it before. It's the video where they, they have people who are throwing the bouncy ball and they're wearing white shirts, and then they have they ask how many times do the people in white pass the ball, this and so you're focused and catching it. Oh, you can stop it. Don't worry about it. And uh, and then in the middle, a gorilla of somebody dressed up in a gorilla costume walks out, beats its chest, and walks off. And they found it's a huge percentage of people don't even notice that there's a gorilla. They're just so hyper focused on the ball passing around, and it's that idea of selective attention. And so one of the humorous things, like. There might be burning bushes all around you that you don't even see. I mean, I'm amazed, like, with our kids with their selective attention. I could get on a bull, like, with a bullhorn and have a plane fly a banner over our house doing loops that says, it's time to clean your room, and nobody hears it. But I could hide in my closet and whisper, does anybody? And everyone here, and like magnets. Yes, I do. Ice cream? Did you, yeah? yeah. And so, how does this happen? Like, we have a remarkable ability to tune out certain things. And so, like, would you even notice if there was a burning bush? You know, what are these kind of burning bushes? You know, we think, all right, if there was a bush on fire that started talking to me, obviously I would notice. Well, maybe not. I mean, what, what is kind of the burning bush? I mean, in one sense, what it is is something that's a paradigm buster. Like, you think life should be this way, and this is happening, and you now know, don't know how to make sense of it. I mean, maybe if you think the way life is, and everything has a natural or a social or a chemical explanation, and yet there's this deep, longing, spiritual hunger in you that never seems to be satisfied, maybe that's a little burning bush. Or maybe certain disappointments where I thought life should be this way. They can be burning bushes. You know, it's uh, <clears throat> playoff baseball season. So, you know, I'm a Braves fan. Part of being a Braves fan is we, we expect to be utterly disappointed, to have our expectations heart taken all the way up to the almost and then just crushed. And so last night, we're watching the first round of the playoffs. I'm... 
entering into that state of emotional disappointment. My oldest daughter comes and said, Daddy, are you angry? Ah, sorry, I'm t- yep, yeah, taking this too serious. Um, just, just really disappointed. But that's just, so just every October, that's just the way it'll be. That's the lot that we have chosen. And, uh, but I think about it, like, you know, uh, John Smoltz, when they finally won the, the World Series in 1995, one of the remarkable moments is he had spent his entire life working up to this thing, wanting, desiring, and once they got it, and he was finally holding that golden trophy that represent glory and success, the gnawing thought was, is this it? Is this all that I've given my life for? And in that moment, that beautiful trophy that he had worked his entire life turned into a burning bush where God spoke to him and said, John, there is something more. There's something more to life. And it was a profound, powerful moment. Would you notice the burning bush if you saw it? Maybe they're everywhere. We just don't see them. You will not encounter him if you don't make time, Moses had to go off the, the beaten path. He had to leave his sheep. He had to take a moment out of his normal life to seek after, uh, to see this thing. Now notice the third thing, then who does he meet? You know, it's an interesting movement. Seven times it uses the verb for to see. He saw, he saw. Something captured his, his imagination and he saw, but then there's a transition and a transition to he heard moves from sight to to voice, to speech. And notice it says in verse (coughs) 4, or it says in verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in this bush. And it started to burn, but it wasn't consumed. It appeared as a flame of fire in the middle. And then Moses turns aside and notice what God, it says God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So first thing, it, it, he encounters this bush, but it's, it's personal. It, it defines who you are. He's spoken to personally. There's two different names where God, God says, I know you. I mean, could you imagine hearing your name called? God knows his name. This is a deeply personal interaction. He is addressed personally with commanding authority. And it's interesting because Moses is not the expert on Moses. This is one of the great lessons we have to learn. You're not the world expert on you. God is the world's expert on you. He defines you. He made you. And he's going to tell Moses who Moses is. And then God's going to tell Moses who he is that we'll get to next week. First, who you are. Moses, I know your name. And then notice where you are. He says, stop. Don't come any closer. Because the place you are standing on is holy ground. You know, one of the mysteries of this whole section that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks is the great mystery is not how does the bush, you know, the miracle is not the bush. The miracle is that Moses comes into God's presence and he doesn't get evaporated or incinerated. You know, when they come back to the mountain in Exodus 19 and Moses brings all of Israel, God tells him, you draw a line around this mountain and do not let anyone, not child, not animal, no one come close enough to touch it. Because if they touch it, they're gone. They're going to die. And then here's Moses standing right in the danger zone. And, and not only is he standing there, as we go through the conversation, and the fascinating things about Exodus 3 and 4 This is the longest conversation that we have recorded between a person and God in the Bible. And Moses spends most of it either whining or making excuses 
or talking back. God says, I'm about to do this. And I said, whoa, whoa, who am I to do that? Well, actually, we're not talking about you. We're talking about what I'm doing. And then Moses said, well, if you send me, they're going to ask, what's your name? I don't know who you are. Well, here's my, Okay, well, what if they don't listen? We'll do these. Well, and then finally he says, I don't want to go. <laughs> send someone else. And uh, so he's talking. And so the question is, how does like, Moses live in, in the holy zone? And that's going to become a key word, holy, 171 times in the, first, in the, the books of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch, is that holy. This is only the second time. This place that's set apart come into God's presence. Why does he not die? I think it's because of who he's speaking to in the bush. You know, it's not just an angel. It's the angel of the Lord. And now this is a, a, a mysterious character that in the Old Testament often comes on the scene and you don't really understand right, who, the, who is this? Because it's not a normal angel. Because normal angels, you don't fall down and worship. So you remember John in Revelation when he comes in the presence of an angel and he's on his face and he starts to worship an angel. So don't do that. Stop. I'm a creature just like you. Get up. But then here the angel tells him, take your shoes off. In essence, get on your knees, bow down. Worship is appropriate. So you think, all right, who is this? So there's an angel that's mediating the presence of the living God so Moses can encounter him and hear his voice. And you have this mysterious character in the Old Testament, also connected with the fire. Like remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're thrown into the fiery furnace, and they look around and say, wait, there's another person. It's an angel of the Lord who's walking with them in the fire. So the question is, is who is this? And I think it's it's... Jesus, I think it's a pre-incarnate Jesus, and we'll unpack more as we unpack the name, how Jesus takes on this name, but he's encountering the living Lord mediated through Jesus' presence and Jesus' words, and that's how he's drawn in. So it's this encounter with the angel of the Lord that he learns who he is and what his life is meant to be and the, the task that's now before him. So next week, we'll look more at the character of the I am who speaks to him. But this week, I just want to settle in on what does it mean to encounter him? How do you come into his presence? What does he say or what does he do? What do you find? Who do you, who do you face? Essentially, in this section, nine different times, God says, I have, I will, I am, I am. And then notice what he says, I am the God of your father, singular, you may not have seen him your entire life, the one that you might have never known, but the one who kind of heroically gave you birth in faith. And I'm the God of your father, and also the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Remember what I promised them? Remember what they did? Remember how Abraham could trust me to leave everything and set out into the great unknown? You can trust me too. Remember how Isaac faced death, but I provided the lamb. Wait until you see the lamb I will provide for you. Remember how Jacob had to learn the folly of trying to make it in this world, living by his own wits and his own savvy. You trust me. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then notice in verse 10, this is how you know you've really encountered the Lord. Is look what he says in verse 10. He says, Behold, come I am sending you. 
So the dynamic is we come into the God's presence, we encounter him, and then we're sent out. That's how you know you've had a real transformative experience or encounter. He then sends you. And this is the normal routine dynamic of the Christian life. Come into his presence and then sent out with his power. This is what we try to replicate every Sunday where we come into his presence and then sent out with power. Every morning you wake up, there should be moments where, all right, let me come into his presence and then go out with power. And what happens when we do is we become the burning bush for people. That's what happens to Moses once he comes back to the mountain and he ascends into God's presence. And then he starts to actually physically burn and his face radiates so much that it makes everyone uncomfortable when he comes back. And they're like, put a veil on. You're too bright. And think about it. Spiritually, we come into his presence and God wants us to be kind of the burning bush to those around us. So how do we come? How do we experience that? You remember on Pentecost, once the Holy Spirit came down, it came down on them like flames of fire. And then they began to speak the word. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it somewhat encouraging that you think, all right, we're supposed, God's calling us to be burning bushes. You know, I, that, you know that's one thing. J.I. Packer talks about the Puritans are like these redwood trees. Giant, powerful, strong. All right, I, can, I can't imagine being a redwood tree. If that's the call, you're going to be a sequoia. Uh, But you can be a bush. I mean, that's not too high. We can do that. He's called to be a, he becomes a burning bush to people. Moses, he's attracted by wonder. He's confronted by awe. And then he's called to mission sent out. As we behold him, we then become like him and begin to reflect him. So let's pause here as we transition to communion and think about uh, how can we, what, what needs to happen in your life so you can make the necessary detours so you can encounter the burning bush? I mean, now, uh, in one sense, we have, you know, Moses, you know, the bush is just an ordinary thing. God loves to use the ordinary things to speak to us. He's chosen to indwell and empower a book where now he talks to us through a book. He's chose to demonstrate who he is through these little, like, grape juice and wafers can be a burning bush because they can speak to us and they can tell you. They can call out your name and say, we come to the table. We're reminded that, Ben, Ben, I am for you. My blood has paid the, the, the price for your sins, and now you are forgiven. And I can hear that powerful word out of these most ordinary things. So let's take a moment and let's pray and then we'll, we'll come to the table. So Lord, we praise you for your word. We praise you for your eagerness to encounter us. And I pray that you would help us, help us to appropriately turn aside in the proper time so we can experience you. I pray that you help us to come into your presence, come into your word. So I pray for everyone here that they would, uh, that they would seek you And as we pray, I I, I thank you for your word. And as we think about the reminder that you are the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, we pray for your people spread all throughout the world. Uh, We pray even this weekend as we've seen war uh, open up in Israel. We pray uh, for your people. We pray for your presence. And uh, we thank you for your commitment to your covenant 
all throughout the ages, that it is sure and strong. We thank you that you speak to us through the most simple things, like your Holy Spirit can empower a book and it speaks to us, that you can indwell and empower your people, and that we encounter them, we can encounter you. And we thank you that your, the elements, the bread, the wine, they speak to us of your promise and your faithfulness to us. We thank you for these things. In your name I pray. Amen. So here at Trinity each week we come to the Lord's table. This is the Lord's table, so it's not ours. And so if you are uh, seeking to follow him and love him and trusting him as your Savior, you come. We'll have four stations, so there'll be two in the front, two in the back. The one in this back corner will be gluten-free, so if you need gluten-free, you go there. And then you come and you, you take the wafer and you dip and you let that be a tangible reminder of his gift of grace to you. Once our servers are in place, you come.